morning. If you don't know me and I don't know you, I am Liz, and I'm glad to be here today for our next um, part of this series, Questions People Ask. And I thought um, that it would be fun to ask you guys some questions that my people ask. So um, I have three kids, and uh, so we play games like Would You Rather in my house. So we're going to play a little um, Street Family version of Would You Rather today. I had my kids, who are eight and six, and my husband, who is 35, come up with some would-you-rather questions. And uh, because I'm a kid life person at heart, we're going to play today. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you a would-you-rather question, and you are going to raise either your um, right hand or your left hand to vote. And if you feel particularly passionate about it, feel free to just yell it out. So uh, here's what's going to happen. Um, I did edit these to make sure they weren't too weird or gross. So here we go. All right, would you rather kiss a frog or a pig? You guys have to play. You have to play. Okay. Okay, some people are passionate, all right. There are a lot of animal ones. My kids were in a vein. Okay, here we go. The next one. Would you rather live in a cabin in the woods or a penthouse in the city? We live in Mount Vernon. You guys are probably cabin people. Okay. All right. Next one. Okay. This is the one Ryan wanted me to pull. My husband, who's 35, did this one. Here we go. Would you rather toot every time you took a step or burp every time you opened your mouth? My husband is a toot person in the back. No one wants to vote for that one, right? <laughs> he wanted me to rig it, so I definitely pulled that, but I didn't. It just happened. All right, two more. Would you rather eat a cookie or a donut? Passion about donuts. Both. That's the right answer, I think. Okay, last one. Here we go. Would you rather have a shark tail or a lion mane? More passion. I love it. I see mostly lion manes. Nobody wants a shark tail. That makes sense. All right. Thanks for playing. That was fun. These are not the questions we're going to talk about today, so, but they are the questions that my kids ask. Uh, the question we're going to talk about today is, what is faith? So obviously, I went to dictionary.com, and it said that faith is, firstly, confidence or trust in a person or thing, and secondarily, Belief that is not based on proof. And because we're in church, I also went to the Bible. Hebrews 11.1 1 is kind of a definition of faith. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for. It is being sure of what we do not see. You're welcome. Have a fantastic rest of your day. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. We are going to dig into it a little bit more than that. But I think faith is a concept that most of us understand inherently, right? Um, we have faith in things in our world, uh, things that are unseen, like gravity, for instance. We have this experience that when we throw up a ball in the air that it will come down. And even though that's something that we don't see, we know that it will happen because it happens over and over and over again. We also have some um, basic trust in things that we um, have a lot of confidence will happen. Things like um, if we see a chair, that if we sit down on it, it'll probably hold us up. Or if we flip a light switch, that most likely a light somewhere 
well, come on. These are things that are um, held true over and over again, which is why we have faith in them. So in a lot of ways, we can say that the concept of faith is enforced through the faithfulness of the thing in which we put our faith in, right? It proves itself to be faithful. And faith is definitely a concept that we uh, see throughout Scripture. It's mentioned first in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapter 15, talking about Abraham, how Abraham um, had great faith. And then it is also mentioned in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, talking about how God's people need to show great patience, remaining faithful to Jesus until the very end. And it's something that is mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times in the middle of all of that. So if we want to call ourselves followers of Christ, faith is something that we can't get around. Like we all have to understand what this concept of faith means in order to follow God. So back to Hebrews, uh, I gave you the kind of definition of what faith is. It's being sure of what we hope for, sure of what we do not see. And following that, um, Hebrews 11 is considered, some people call it the faith hall of fame because what the author does is he um, gives you all these names of these great people of faith and he runs you through this big long list of why they had faith. And we're not going to talk about we're not going to talk in depth about all of them, but I am going to run you through this list really quickly um, because if you don't know these stories, it would be great if you did. They're amazing, and I would really encourage you to um, read more about them if you haven't. So here we go. Really quickly, Abel showed faith by bringing the best of what he had to God. Enoch's faith pleased God so much that God actually allowed him to exit this world without dying. So that's pretty interesting. Noah is someone you probably know about. He had great faith, even though the warning that God gave him was of something in the future that he didn't know was unseen and frankly was really unbelievable. And Noah still chose to have faith in the middle of that. Abraham had a lot of faith and we're going to talk more about him later. So I'm going to skip over him for a second. Sarah, Abraham's wife, had faith that she would be a mother even in a very old age. Isaac's faith was demonstrated in a blessing he gave to his sons. Jacob's faith was demonstrated in his worship of God. Joseph had this future-focused faith that went even like beyond his death, the things that he believed were going to be happening. Moses' parents showed faith over fear by keeping their child alive in the midst of a mass um, a mass killing of all the children of their nation. Moses had faith when he chose to identify with his biological people group who were slaves instead of his adoptive people group who were royalty. And when he chose to leave Egypt and when he chose to eventually return to Egypt and God gave him the privilege of introducing the first Passover and leading his people out of slavery. And that was a reward that God gave him for his faith. The people of Israel had faith when they trusted in the power of God's miracles. And Rahab had faith when she believed that the future belonged to God and the people of Israel, even though that was something that she had no context for believing or understanding. It was completely new. And she chose to align herself with this God of this people that she didn't even know because she believed that he was the true God. And then they um, don't go into the stories of these following people, but they mention them, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And these people are all these great shining examples 
of faith, and their lives are told in the biblical narrative, um, outlining like their spiritual highs, their low points, and like I said, if you haven't read their stories, I would really encourage you. But I think um, maybe when we read a long list like this, that we might find ourselves wondering like what, like how we can even relate to those people. Their stories are almost fairy tale like. They're these stories of like um, conquest and um, battle and miracles and all these things that we don't really get. Um, they saw miracles taking place that were beyond their wildest dreams, like seas being parted and um, women getting pregnant when they're 90 and city walls falling down when a bunch of trumpets were blown. And they faced incredible hardships that we don't like slavery and child sacrifice and a flood that wiped out almost the entire population of the world. And you might find yourself thinking like I did, like, of course these people had faith. Like, I would have faith too if an angel walked up to my door and said, you're going to have a kid in a year. Like, that's not something we can relate to. And so in the face of feeling not able to relate to these people, I looked a little bit more closely at the questions that were asked. And it wasn't just, what is faith? There were some others asked in that same vein, like, what do I do when the spiritual highs fade? Is faith more than just a feeling or an emotion? And how do you go get through a time when you aren't feeling particularly full of faith? And what I realized as I read through that list of people and thought about the questions that you guys actually asked is maybe the stories that we tell of like heroes and villains or even in the news, how we report on news that's, you know, um, either tragedy or like great victory or even in the way we use social media, right? Like what's post-worthy? It's stuff that's amazing or like huge fails. Like these are the things that we post because these are the compelling stories that we find. We find compelling highs and lows. And so we kind of get conditioned to believe like maybe that's where we should be living. It's either this high or this low time. And if we're not living in one of those spaces, then like what's the point? So um, as an example of that, this is how we even tell our own stories, right? So I'm going to tell you guys a story right now. Um, so almost exactly nine years ago, I was um, going into labor with my first child. New parent. I was so excited. I was also very excited because it was nine days after my due date, and I was ready for the baby to get here. And I was scheduled to be induced the very next day, and so I was, didn't want to do that, so I was really excited when labor started all on its own. So it was about 4.30 in the afternoon, and um, I labored for a little while. I did all the things you're supposed to do, and then um, we went to the hospital about 7 o'clock, and we were there for a while, and the nurses said I wasn't progressing as much as they would like. I didn't really know what that meant. I was like, what do you mean? And so at about 10 p.m., they sent me home, and I remember feeling so, like, frustrated and dejected and confused, and I said to the nurse, I was like, I, like, when am I supposed to come back? Like, if this isn't labor, then I don't really know what labor is because I think this is it. And she was like, it is. You're right. If it was my choice, I would keep you here, but the doctor says, send you home, so I have to send you home. And she said, you're going to be back. Like, I'm confident you're going to be back. Just wait for the contractions to get closer together or if your water breaks. 
So I'm like, okay, I guess. All right, let's go home. So we go home, and this is July for no reason at all. It was not storming. There was nothing weird happening. The power was out at our house. Great. Okay, so no way to distract myself. Like, I can't watch TV. This, there's no air conditioning. Why? Why is this happening? So we labored at home for like an hour-ish. My contractions got stronger. I went back to the hospital. They admitted me. And I get back to the room, and they come in, and they say, do you want an epidural? And I said, well, you know, I was going to make this a game-time decision. I thought to myself, maybe I won't need one. I don't know. I don't know what childbirth is like. Maybe I can do it. And they said, do you want an epidural? And I said, yes, please. So they took my blood, and then the anesthesiologist came back, and he told me something that no one warned me he might tell me. He said, your white blood cell count is too high, and I can't give you this epidural. No one mentioned that in my classes. My doctor didn't tell me that they might tell me this. This is not something I was prepared for. But the baby train had left the station. She was coming. I guess we're doing this. So I labored all night. And early in the morning, um, I had stalled through the night at about seven centimeters. And early in the morning, I went from seven centimeters to 10, which for those of you that have not done this before, is like babies ready. Here we go. I went from seven to 10 in 30 minutes. And that's really fast to dilate that much in that short of amount of time. And the nurses started scrambling. They were like, we don't know if your doctor's gonna get here in time because we haven't called her yet. We're calling her now, she's on her way. Um, when they think your doctor's not gonna come also, they bring like a million people into your room. Like so many people come because the nurse literally said to my husband, first time parents, they don't pay me to deliver the babies. Great, super, all right, we're gonna do this. Uh, instilling confidence in these new families. So uh, my doctor made it, thankfully, and uh, 15 minutes later I pushed and baby was here, 6.24 a.m., seven pounds, nine ounces, and in two weeks she turns nine, which is crazy. So, and telling that story is an example, right? Highs, lows. Because you guys don't want to hear the middle part. There's nothing to tell. It is not exciting. It would go like, at 1.15 a.m., I had a contraction. And then I stood up and I breathed because that was the only way it felt better. And then I sat down. And then at 1.18 a.m., I had a contraction. And I stood up and I breathed through it because it was the only way it felt better. And then I sat down. And this time I dozed off a little bit because I was really tired. And then at 1.21, I woke up in the middle of a contraction. You know, this is what happened for that, you know, six-ish hours in the middle. And I only told you about this little bit of my labor story, not about the other 85% of it. And even though I didn't tell you about that part, in reality, that was like the hardest part of the whole labor, right? Like that in-between time was really difficult because again, I'm a first time mother. It's the first time I'm going through this and I was exhausted. It was the middle of the night. I hadn't slept. Um, I had no idea how long it was gonna take. You hear these stories of people being in labor for you know, 24, 36 hours. Thankfully, that was not my experience and props to all of you ladies who did have that experience. 
But I was like, what if this goes on for another 24 hours? Like, I can't, I couldn't wrap my mind around that. There was, like, no light at the end of the tunnel, and I just wanted it to be over. But these are not the stories that we tell, even though, in reality, our lives are lived mostly in that in-between space. They're not lived in the highs, and they're not lived in the lows. They are lived in your ordinary days where you get up, and you go to work, and you sit in meetings, and then you pick up your kids, and then you grab a quick dinner, and then you head off to all of whatever you have in the evenings, your practices and rehearsals and whatever, and then you go to bed, and the next day you rinse and repeat, right? This is where we live our lives, in the middle. These are the days that are just fine. Nothing is happening that is incredible, and nothing that is happening is terrible. And so I think the question shouldn't necessarily be what is faith, but how do I have faith in these in-between times? Hebrews 11 in that hall of um, fame for faith, it does a great job of hitting like the highs and lows, and those are great. They give us great lessons that we can learn. But I got to thinking about these characters and how much of their stories are actually documented, right? How much of their lives do we actually know anything about? And they talk specifically about kind of these two men, Abraham and Moses, that are kind of like these gold standards of faith. So I thought to myself, I wonder. So I went back to Genesis and Exodus, and I skimmed their stories, and I jotted a couple of notes down. Here's what I found. Abraham was 75 years old in his first recorded great act of faith when he chose to obey God and become this nomad wandering um, toward God's promise. 75 years old. Before that, all we really know is that he um, that gives us a couple names of family members and that he was married and that they didn't have children. This is it. First 75 years, that's all we've got. Then after that, after that first act of faith, there's a 10-year gap before his next recorded act of faith. So he's 85 when he receives this message from God that he will father a great nation, which is obviously confusing to him because he and his wife have no children. And so he had to have this act of faith to trust God's ability to keep promises. Then after that, he's 85 then, after that he waits another 15 years for the fulfillment of that promise to happen. 15 years, he is now 100 when his son Isaac is born. After that, there's one more great act of faith to talk about, and it doesn't say exactly how long after that it is. It just says sometime later. We know that his son would have been old enough to carry a stack of wood up a mountain. So we're just going to guesstimate because it doesn't say. We're going to say it's another 15 years. Okay, Abraham is now 115 years old. And in that act of faith, God asks him to take the promise that he had given him, his son Isaac, and sacrifice him. And if you don't know the story, thankfully, God stops the sacrifice at the last minute and provides a different sacrifice for Abraham to use. But Abraham is willing to sacrifice this promise in the trust that God's promises can still hold true and that God will not contradict himself. And then the biblical narrative tells us that he lived to be 175 years old. So if we take his acts of faith and we bookend them, we're talking about 40 years worth, age 75 to approximately age 115. 
That's not including his first 75 years or his last 60. And all we have in that time are these little snippets of his life. This happened at this particular time. On this day, this happened. During this month, he traveled. And in those in-between times, the Bible just gives us some little things, right? He traveled back and forth. He survived a famine. He settled a lot of household and family disputes. He bailed out his degenerate nephew a couple times. He twice, this happened twice, this is crazy to me, twice he lied to the king of the land that he was traveling through and said that his wife was his sister so that the king wouldn't kill him. That happened twice. It didn't work out very well either time, but I mean, I, he didn't die, so I guess it worked. Um, and then lastly, he took matters into his own hands at one point to try to build his family line instead of waiting for God to fulfill the promise by trying to have um, an heir through his concubine. And eventually he sends them away. And these are all things that happen in this in-between time of these great moments of faith. His in-between was not rosy. It was not beautiful. Some of it was messy. And frankly, most of it, we don't even know what was happening. Most of the time, we have no idea what was going on in Abraham's life, in his mind, in his heart, how he was keeping faith or not keeping faith. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Moses, but it's basically the same. He lived 120 years with only a handful of significant events chronicled. He has a little bit more in his in-between because he was also setting up a nation. So he was like developing laws and rules and governing structures. So that's chronicled a little bit. But mostly there are still a lot of missing parts and pieces of his 120 years of life. And these are the people that we know the most about. The in-between places are not easy places to find yourselves. They weren't easy for these guys. They're not easy for us. It is tiring. You don't know how long it's going to last. It can be really boring and monotonous, and it can be really easy to get distracted. I think it's easy to have faith in the high times when we're close to God. And in a lot of ways, although it's very hard when we're in a low point, there's this level of desperation, and we don't know where to cling except to God. And so that can also lead us to feeling closer to him and to those feelings of faith to be easier to have. You have these feelings of feeling close, feelings of feeling desperation, but in the middle, our feelings kind of fizzle, you know? And when your feelings fizzle, it's hard to want to pursue this thing that you say you have, faith. And so in those in-between spaces, we need to lean on this different character trait, the character trait of endurance. And endurance is stepping outside of the highs and the lows, away from our feelings, and making a decision, a straight-out decision of whether we are going to keep our focus on Jesus or whether we're not. And when we talk about endurance, I'm going to um, jump back now to Hebrews. Because Hebrews was a letter written by an unknown author to a group of people who were on this kind of decline in their faith and their relationships with one another. And this author wrote this letter as this kind of urgent plea that the people would stay the course to endure regardless of their situation, high, low, or in between. 
So right before he tells us about all these great people of faith in chapter 11, in chapter 10, he introduces this concept of endurance. He starts telling the readers to come close to God and to each other, to not give up hope, to remember God's faithfulness and their experiences with God in the past. And then he transitions into this chapter 11 of saying, I want you to endure. Now listen to all these people who did it, right? These people did it, and here's how it worked out for them. And I'm going to read you guys a little bit starting at verse 32 of chapter 11. This is after all those people that I ran you through earlier. Here's what it says. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. And then at this point, he kind of shifts the focus from these great, amazing stories to something a little darker, a little deeper. Others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. See, the, faith, the reality is that faith doesn't guarantee us a particular outcome. Having faith doesn't equal happily ever after, just in the same way that faith doesn't equal I'm going to die a horrible death right? Neither of those things are true. Faith exists on this spectrum, and we have to have faith, great faith or little faith, anywhere in the middle of that. Both triumph and tragedy, success and failure are descriptions of the life of trust in God, and you can find your story anywhere in the middle of that. And it goes on to say, all these people were praised. They earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them had received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us, so they would not reach perfection without us. And now that he's kind of concluded these stories of these historical figures, he's going to shift focus back to us, the reader. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially that sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people, and you won't be weary, and you won't give up. Another version says, think about him, then you won't get tired, you won't lose hope. The Hebrews 11 theme of faith can't be separated from the Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12 theme of endurance. And endurance isn't something that we 
enjoy in our culture. It's not a buzzword. It's not flashy. It doesn't sound glamorous or, frankly, even that enjoyable. You know, I think when we think of endurance, we think of just, like, trudging through, like, just get through it. But I think it's important to note that our endurance isn't in, like, doing all the right things or checking off all the right boxes or, like, keeping up these feelings that we think we should have. But endurance is about where our focus lies. We keep enduring by keeping our eyes fixed only on Jesus. And when we do that, we won't get tired. We won't lose hope. There's an experiment um, that I heard about recently that was done by a professor at Johns Hopkins in the 1950s. And here's what he did. He took, he um, theorized that these rats that he had, that he had these wild rats who were like really fierce and aggressive, and he had these domestic rats. And he was trying to see how long they could swim before they drowned. Terrible, awful, don't do it. Anyway, this is what he, this is what he thought. What he thought was that the domesticated rats um, would, would not last as long as these wild, fierce, aggressive mice. It was this theory that the aggression would keep them going, that they would have like this grit and endurance. But instead, what he found was that the wild rats gave up really quickly. He put them in these jars half filled with water and basically just watched what would happen. The wild rats gave up really fast, like within minutes. The domestic rats, other than a couple of them, swam, some of them, for days before they got so exhausted that they gave up. And so he started to think about why would these domestic rats have so much more endurance than these wild rats, and he theorized that it had to do with hope, that the domestic rats maybe at some point in their life had been rescued from something or something like that, and so they had maybe this feeling like maybe something will come and help me. And so he tweaked his experiment, and he took a new set of rats. And this time, when the rat was on the verge of drowning, he would take it out of the water and give it a couple minutes of rest, and then he would put it back in. And what he found is that when he put the rat back in the water after that initial rescue, that the rat swam for a significantly longer amount of time after that. So here's what he said. The rats quickly learn that the situation is not actually hopeless. After elimination of hopelessness, the rats do not die. When hope is present, we're able to endure. Because it's not pointless. There is something we are working toward. And I think, as I was reflecting on this concept of faith and hope and endurance, I think that our faith can kind of be found at this intersection of hope and endurance, when what we believe to be true, what we hope to be true, meets our willingness to press on, our willingness to endure toward this ultimate goal. And that is true whether we're in a high, a low, or an in-between, that our faith can be found where our hope and our endurance collide. Because faith is a constant and enduring perseverance of hope regardless of the person, the place, or the circumstance that we find ourselves in. So back to our question, how do I have faith in the in-between? I think it's in the realization that just because it's mundane, just because it's boring, just because it's slow, and there's nothing really much to tell, that our lives are still God-ordained. Oswald Chambers, in his um, famous devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, says, 
The routine of life is actually God's way of saving us between our times of great inspiration from him. Don't always expect God to give you his thrilling moments, but learn to live in these common times of drudgery by the power of God. And I think we do this by maintaining our hope in the promises of Christ and our endurance in fixing our eyes on Jesus. Ultimately, our faith is rooted in one truth, and that is God is faithful. At the beginning, I mentioned that faith is strengthened when the thing that we have put our faith in proves itself to be faithful. And I don't want to miss the opportunity today to tell you that truth, that God is faithful. We can trust the one who is writing and telling our stories, both the highs and the lows and the in-betweens, and the stories of people who have come before us. If you're unsure about whether you can actually trust him, that's what that Hebrews passage was talking about when it talks about that great cloud of witnesses. It's these people who have come before us, both in the biblical stories and also even like the people sitting here in this room today. If you've had lived experience as to the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God, you are a witness to that, to those who maybe have not had that lived experience yet. And these witnesses can attest to the truth that God is faithful. So if you haven't, if you're sitting here today and you haven't put your faith and hope and endurance in Jesus, um, I'd love to give you an opportunity to do that today. I think that we would be missing it if we didn't in this conversation of faith talk about how you can take that first step toward this life of faith and hope and endurance. So if you wouldn't mind giving some privacy to each other by bowing our heads, um, I just want to acknowledge in this moment that faith is a risk. It's a risk to putting your faith in God because it's a blind step, absent of proof at the beginning. So in the potential absence of your own lived experience as to the faithfulness of God, I just want to encourage you, if that's your story, that there are millions of stories in the great cloud of witnesses that can tell you that will give you evidence to the truth that God is worthy of your faith. So uh, if you are find yourself in that place and you feel willing to risk it and take that jump, take that step to put your faith in God in the first for the first time, um, if you would just slip your hand in the air. witnesses that we are sitting in this room. Um, if everyone could just join with me for anyone who might be taking that step for the first time and repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are faithful. I believe that your promises are true. Today I put my hope in you. I promise to fix my eyes on you and run my race with endurance. Jesus, I put my faith Forgive me of my sins. Make me brand new. I give my life to you. In your name, amen.
dismissed this morning. May you remember that this week. He will not fail you. Amen.